0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am very pleased today to welcome Colleen Grogan, who's the author of Grow and Hide, The History of America's Healthcare State, from Oxford University Press. Hi, Colleen. Welcome to the podcast. Lovely to have you here.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. It's great to be here.
0: Um, so before we home in specifically on the book itself, I wonder if I might ask you to uh, introduce yourselves a little bit to our listeners and tell them how it is that you came to this particular project.
1: Absolutely. I'd be happy to. So um, I am a professor of health policy and politics in the Crown Family School of Social Work, Policy and Practice at the University of Chicago. Um, and so what brought me to this book um, Throughout my career, I have had two main foci in my work. Um, One is just straight up health policy. Um, And those questions are trying to understand the impact of health policy. And for me, that's mainly been focused on Medicaid policies uh, with an aim to improve policies and create more health equity. and the second area of my research has been focused on health politics, um, which are motivated, quite frankly, by um, frustration. So uh, questions like, why the hell does our healthcare system look like this? Um, why did we design the Medicaid program in this way? Um, and it's this latter question that brought me to Grow and Hide. Um, so I had a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to research the political evolution of the Medicaid program. And at that time, so this was a while ago, um, no one had really delved into the antecedents to Medicaid. Um, that is what uh, what led to the creation of Medicaid in 1965. Um so, when I started to do research on that question, I found the bones of Grown Hyde. Um, as someone who was trained in public health and political science, I was taught that we have a predominantly private healthcare system. Um, and it wasn't until 1965, with the passage of Medicare and Medicaid, um, that the government really got involved in financing the US healthcare system. Uh, but when I started to look at historical documents, I saw much more government financing than the official or academic discourse suggested. Um, So when I saw statements from public health leaders in the 1930s and 40s uh, talking about our national health program and the government's role in financing that, I thought, wow, what's going on here? Um, So what brought me to this book was, was Actually, research, um, and so it was sort of a series of stumbles. Um, when you're collecting data in an archive, trying to do something else, um, but this other thing keeps growing. Um, I didn't, so I didn't set out to write this book. Um, as I said, I thought I was going to write a book on Medicaid, but after a while, I couldn't sort of not write this book about grow and hide.
0: Perfect. So, so uh, the the book makes what. Um, as you hinted at, right, to many people is going to be a, a surprising or counterintuitive argument, right, that we've got much more public health spending in the US than we've been taught to think. And you at one point suggested it may be as much as 60% of all the money uh, in health. Um, so uh, I'm going I'm to quote you at you for a second, and we'll go from there. So you write, to debunk the American myth we must not only critique what the state does, but also deconstruct how policy actors describe the state. We must shift the historical question dramatically from why no government action to why has the American government significantly expanded healthcare spending and public provision in every historical period over the last century? And how has the state successfully? hidden this public spending from view. So in the book, as, as you well know, you've broken this history into three periods prior to 19 th- prior to 1930, excuse me, 1930, 1965, and 65 to 2020. Um, if you're up for it, why don't we just sort of take each of those in turn? Start off by talking to us a little bit about um, Maybe say a little bit more about what you mean by grow and hide uh, by talking about that prior to 1930 period, and then we will move forward in time.
1: Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, so the simple way to think about grow and hide is um, is kind of, as I think the quote sort of illustrated, but it's essentially substantially publicly financed system while framing it the opposite, Right. Um, and uh, it, it kind of grow and hide happens because we have this American myth um, that I that you again, you kind of alluded to and I talk about in the the kind of introductory chapter. Um, and uh, um, it's it, what what I think is really important is that what I try to really document in the book is that it's very intentional. Um, so I think, I think, but as Miss, as what happens with Miss, I think there are political actors who know exactly what they're doing. And it's very intentional to hide the role of public financing. On the other hand, I think the myth has taken on such a large um you know, it's 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 doing the role that myths do that many people that are actually quite knowledgeable, such as as I said, I got a doctorate in health policy and in um, and focusing on on health politics and kind of came away from that doctoral program holding on to this myth of a private American healthcare state and um, so it took a long time for me to kind of figure out how could this myth persist for so long? So as you said, if we start, um, uh, you know, why? So the first question is kind of like, why did it grow? Right. And in some ways, that's the easiest question to answer, because every country has a healthcare system. Right. Like we have death and disease and um at its very, very basic level, that's when the populace will say, oh, we need collective action to try to deal with death and disease, right? So, like, that's, um, if you think of, like, with the basic kind of what's a public good? Um, public health, I think, in every country, I mean, it started in the antiquities, right? That, like, we need clean water, we need clean air, we need... Um, and, and the only way we can get that is through public collective action, right? Um, uh And the US is no exception to that. Even though we pretend that we can have many of our public goods through private provision, that only happens through actually a pretty active state. Uh, We just kind of hide what we do. So that started to happen in a really um, significant way uh, with the cholera epidemics um, in the 19th century. And um, I'm really drawing on many other uh, medical historians in that first chapter to just sort of document this really important history around the cholera epidemics. the important rise of, um, you know, germ theory and what became the kind of scientific imperative. Right. And it, it became the scientific evidence of what local municipalities and local governments needed to do to, um, create a sewage system, to create clean streets, to create basic sanitation became kind of irrefutable. Um, And so in chapter one, I just sort of document how even under, um, you know, uh, patronage politics in New York City, um, you know, in the 1860s, um, nonetheless, the government had to uh, really support um, a kind of scientific approach to sanitation, right? So even though it, it was for a long time funding, you know, city inspectors who were very much part of the m- machine politics, it had to eventually kind of shift to really giving significant um, authority to sanitation leaders. Um, and so I think that that's kind of a, a really important basic foundation that explains why we shifted, why public health, kind of the public health state came about. Um, But I I do think I I lay out in in chapter one and chapter two, the importance of patronage politics in shaping um, the healthcare state because um, uh, public health leaders were so disgusted by local politics. And to be honest, rightly so, right? Because there were important things that needed to be done that were not being done under patronage. that uh, they, from the very beginning, had a very anti-government discourse, right? And so, sort of said, we need a non-political scientific state. The way that that we do that is through scientific agencies, which they attempted to create but also from the very beginning talked about this voluntary sector. Um, And of course, you know, many people, historians have written about the rise of the voluntary sector. I mean, starting with Tocqueville, right? But many others are talking about how the voluntary sector um, worked alongside the development of the American welfare state and how important that voluntary sector was and actually um, uh, kind of minimizing the role of government. Ironically. Right. Um, And that worked in the public health care state as well so that um, we started to contract out. We didn't call it that then, but there was such a close collaboration with the voluntary sector that it allowed public health leaders at the time to talk about private provision because they wanted to really signal so strongly um, that it it was not patronage politics that was going to be involved in this.
0: There's Um, a history of, of that. Uh, uh, what rhetorical device in the sort of the welfare state literature more broadly, right? As people will say, you know, there's a sort of whole line of, of literature predominantly from the right saying, no, no, we had this exclusively voluntary sector in the 19th century. Government de- didn't need to get involved. And, you know, everything has gone to hell in a handbasket since they did. But if we look at that, we see, in fact, that lots of private provision, right, local charitable organizations, but overwhelmingly funded by the public sector, and you're seeing a very similar kind of dynamic play out here, correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the part that I tried to bring into this story that I think other people have also been documenting is that we, because of the way public health and medicine, the healthcare system developed in the US um, as very separate systems. Um, we tend to think that they were always separate, right? And that public health really dealt with sanitation and population health questions. And then the healthcare system grew up separate from public health. And so that is very much a big part of part one of, of the book of grow and hide is to show how no, actually, our healthcare system grew out of the public healthcare state, and the reason why that's important, of course, is because it shows that it was the government that created the healthcare infrastructure, um, and uh, and and it wasn't just sort of. Uh, Again, kind of we know that voluntary hospitals um, or what we call nonprofit hospitals today were largely kind of religious based voluntary hospitals, came out of relig- various religious denominations and religious orders. But we we have in our heads that somehow that all came from uh, voluntary contributions. But of, but very little of it actually was financed through voluntary um, contributions. Exactly. And was but, you know, one of.
0: The sorry. State. One of the things that I think is particularly useful in, in that section in particular is that, you know, you've talked about sort of all of the municipal level reform. And that's, again, this pops up in the urban studies literature and in other places. But it's not just at the local level. It's a state level and even at the federal level at this point. Right. You've got boards and agencies using this sort of of trying to use this scientific framework to separate it from government, but very much rooting these institutions in government itself. Yes.
1: Yes, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um and I mean the thing that's also really pretty interesting is alongside this effort to use the voluntary sector and to call it private provision and to kind of hide the role of public financing, there was also this very direct government investment that initially didn't really have to be hidden because there was actually a lot of support for growing the public healthcare state from Business, the business sector, um, you know, from both, you know, across party lines, because again, they the the evidence for the 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 public good that the public healthcare state was creating. Again, as you as you point out, um, state boards of health, municipal um, uh, health departments, uh, were able to show, you know, one dollar investment and in the Public health department created, you know, this percent um, decrease in mortality. Right, so they had even at this very early period, sort of these cost-effectiveness studies that were actually quite persuasive and allowing, um, uh, allowing expansions in health agencies. Um, this weird, uh, anyway, maybe I should. Sure, well,
0: there. just so one other thing there, because it's it's um, you know it's the agencies, but it's also you know sort of massive investments in community uh, health centers and in hospitals. Right? You you if I'm getting this, if I'm remembering this number right, um, seven thousand hospitals right in existence in the United States by 1928. Right. Yeah. Um, largely as a consequence of government investment. However, that winds up. Not being apparent necessarily as as activity of government,
1: right? Absolutely, absolutely. So you know, investments in hospitals um, well before uh, well before Hill Burton. So you know, the Hill Burton Act. For those who know um, health policy, the history of health policy, that's. Typically pointed to as sort of the major federal act that was passed in the post-war period in 1946 that really developed um, the hospital infrastructure across the US. And, and, it, and it was hugely important. And I talk about that in part two of the book. But well before, as you as you say, by 1928, um, we we already have the, the the bones of the hospital system in the US. Um, and it's really providing curative medicine at that time, right? That's that's why it continues to grow, um, because it's able to kind of shift from uh, being seen rightfully so as a place to die to a place where curative care can actually happen. Um, but as you also say, in, in addition, which I think is really important, is that community health centers, there were huge investments in clinics. Um, And, you know, what today we refer to as community health centers, back then we did too, or neighborhood health centers, neighborhood health districts, they came under many different names. They were all financed by local health departments, um, local governments. Um, The history that's been written about community health centers is that it took off in the early 20s and or kind of you know, 1910s, expanded a little bit in the 1920s, and then it completely died. And again, I think what we've fallen prey to a little bit in our historical understanding of, of, of this infrastructure is how how it was described by actors at the time, Um, right? So they sort of said, oh, don't worry, there's no more public funding for community health centers.
0: Nothing to see here, it's all fine, really.
1: Exactly, (laughs) but if you actually look under the hood, which is what I was trying to do, it still persisted. We just called it something different and pretended that government was no longer continuing to fund these clinics, but it, it continued to fund through the 20s and well into the 30s and 40s.
0: Great. So let's use that as a say, Let's jump to the, the second period, 1930 to 1965. What, what, what do you think might be, what is either most important or you think might be most surprising to people about what's going on in that period?
1: Yeah. So um, one thing that I think is most surprising um, is that we have said for so many years now that um, the New Deal, did nothing with regard to healthcare reform, and that's just been a long-standing, um, a, a, a very well-established—I uh, shouldn't say well-established, but a long-standing understanding of the New Deal. And in the book, I really try to debunk that that view because we didn't do national health insurance in the new deal or anything in terms of financing health insurance, but we did, uh, we passed public health acts in the new deal and those acts were crucially important in terms of financing healthcare. So, um, and, and I, what I try to lay out in chapter four and then develop a bit more in five and six, but really in chapter four is to show how public health leaders weren't really all that interested in health insurance. Um, Because they saw um, we could, they were already doing this direct investment in healthcare infrastructure. And if you think about it, that's similar to the National Health Service in Britain, right? The National Health Service is not health insurance. It's, you know, we invest in healthcare infrastructure and as a public investment, people have access to it. Sort of like the VA system. Like the VA, exactly. And so most public health leaders at the time saw that creating that publicly financed system as a much more rational way to provide access to healthcare for the American people than health insurance. And that argument has kind of been lost in our understanding. We've been so focused on why don't we have national health insurance that we've missed the alternative that was very much much in the currency at that time. It was, that was, that's what public health leaders were really fighting for, although Again, depending on their audience, they would kind of hide that they were fighting for that, right? But in in the New Deal period, they didn't they didn't hide it all that much because there was a lot of support for public health funding, um, and so at various times they would try to then also reveal um, that oh, you know, people think socialism is a big, um, you know, as as Edwin Witte, who was the you know, has been called the father of Social Security, um, as he said in, in a talk in 1938, he said, people think socialism is the big bugaboo, but let's look at how much we finance healthcare in the U.S. And he kind of laid it all out in this talk, which I have in Chapter 4. Um, and he says, we're already doing this. We're already doing what people are so afraid of. Why don't we just continue doing it? And then he says, even if you think we're not going to do it, even if we don't pass the Wagner bill, which was this national health program, he says, we're still Going to do it. We will do it whether we pass it or not. And that's what I tried to show in chapter four that he's exactly right. We essentially put in place the bones of this national health program, which is investment and in, in, investment in all the components of that was a five part program. We invest in all four components except for the insurance side. Now, that's, I don't want to diminish the importance of insurance for making sure that there's more health equity. It's hugely important. And the consequences of Grow and Hide I talk about in the third part of the book but um, it's not that we didn't invest in healthcare; we did in a really substantial way.
0: And we've been—I mean, it, we've been so focused on that insurance question, right? As you made reference to, sort of the, the, you know, the, the sort of the, the undergraduate level version of that history is: well, the committee on economic security was contemplating including healthcare in the Social Security Act, but it was too yep. complicated, too much else going on, pushback from too many quarters. So that was the first sort of abandoned effort at healthcare. But in the social Security Act itself. There are large scale grants in aid to states and localities, right? So as you say, we're doing it. But because we, our frame has somehow been so narrowly focused on this insurance question, we've missed all the other stuff that's been going on. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, uh, so obviously, we're compressing massive amounts of time. So, folks need to go out and read the book, don't they? Uh, but let's move forward to that third period, 1965 up through the present. Again, sort of what? Where do you think the things are that that are either most important or most surprising or interesting for folks?
1: Yeah. Um, if I can cheat a little bit and just describe, describe a little bit of um, what I'm, what I tried to do in chapter five and six in part two, because it's important to understand the consequences and where we are today. So essentially um, what happens in the post-war period is we still have massive amounts of subsidies to the healthcare system. I already mentioned the Hill-Burton Act, um, massive amounts of funding to the development of hospitals across the U.S. But what happens at that time, because of the McCarthy era and I really talk about the kind of impact of McCarthyism on um, healthcare discourse and sort of health policy discourse at that time. And it really takes what was a little, a brief period of grow and reveal and shifts it back to grow and hide. And so what happens is even though we continue to finance Um, healthcare, we in a much, in an even more drastic way, hide what we're doing. And in part that happens by the political actors themselves, because they don't feel that they're in a political environment in which they can talk about what's really happening. But it also happens because the the private sector becomes more empowered to begin to re um, reify what these public subsidies are. Um, and so I, I really spent some time um, in chapter uh, uh, five and six talking about the role of the American Hospital Association and the way that they begin to describe public subsidies as um, um as as uh, as insufficient as uh, uh, residual uh, subsidies, as care that doesn't really cover the cost of ind- indigent care for the indigent, um, that they're not able to provide the care they should be providing to um, good paying Americans because the government is underpaying. And so they kind of just drastically shift what's been a really pretty generous provision to the hospital sector as residual and, 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 um, and, 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 de- you know, kind of really demonizing the role of government. And that's important because we tend to think, oh, government really became more demonized in the 1970s. That like when we look at surveys of sort of like Americans, uh, the American public's opinion of government, it, it's fairly high in the 60s. And then we see this dramatic, you know, downward shift. Um going forward. And now, of course, we know the opinion of U.S. government is very, very low. Um, but I try to show in the book, at least on the healthcare side, that that's being shaped very much by the private sector, um, the demonization of government and kind of s- sets the stage for what we see. in in, you know, 1965 going forward. Um, and so by the time we get, ironically, you know, what I what I tried to say is the grow and hide regime of kind of putting us in this situation where we've we've used substantial public financing, but hidden what we've done um, and, um, and the demonization of government. Happened even before we passed Medicare and Medicaid, and I think that that had serious consequences for then how those programs were able to um, develop and persist over time. So one major consequence is that in the 1970s we were focused pretty substantially in the you know in the early period on healthcare planning. That the idea was okay if we if we pass Medicare and Medicaid, substantial financing. health insurance financing of the healthcare system, we have to, the government has to have some role in planning that healthcare delivery system. That was always the, the goal of the public health leaders, even that this comes from way back. And I try to document that in the book, um, but it just fails miserably in the 1970s and it fails in part because, um, government again makes it voluntary. So it's, it's a very weak regulatory passage of, of a major planning act. Um, but it also fails because the hospital system already has control of the discourse is sort of, you know, the private sector has control of the discourse and is able to deem and is able to just undermine this role of, of planning. Um, and so by the time we get to the end of the 1970s, um, uh, The private sector has defined health uh, government's role in planning as government regulation, um, even though it really was voluntary planning. Um, And I think that that is a really important strategic shift to call it regulation, because in fact, we've never had a strong regulatory state around the infrastructure development, around the healthcare delivery system. and so when you've already said, oh, we tried, uh, regu- we tried regulating the healthcare system and the government failed, um, that's a really important um, establishing that discourse. I think was very important and launched the kind of competitive approach in the 1980s and. To to present, so we also have then of course from 1980 to present the the kind of competitive approach in healthcare that I think grows comes out of grow and hide um, because government subsidizes the role of capital in the U.S. healthcare system. That's really what I um, uh, what I talk about in chapter eight um, and helps explain the rise of private equity in healthcare today. Um, and then in chapter. Yeah.
0: Sorry, I was just going to ask. You, it's it's it's. It, can you talk about that a little bit? Because that I thought that was a particularly interesting and dispiriting discussion, looking at at the ways in which private equity has become so central, um, not just in hospitals but especially in hospitals.
1: Yeah. Um, so, well, today, um, private equity. Uh, I, this this was a, another example of. Um, doing research for one book and realizing you have another book (laughs) waiting for you, which is the book book waiting for me now is financialization and healthcare and the role of private equity. Um, But yeah, so today their private equity is involved in absolutely every sector of the healthcare system it isn't just hospitals um but but in the book i really focus more on kind of what was happening around um subsidizing capital investments um in hospitals because that's really where it kind of first happened through the tax-exempt bond um But what's important about that is um, it was government guarantee of reimbursement um, to the hospitals and reimbursement of interest depreciation to hospitals. Um, There's there's a lot of details around this, which I will just leave out. Um, But the reason that was important is that the capital markets, um, hospitals went to, uh, to banks, prior to these subsidies to try to get loans for capital for, for construction, for new construction, new technology, but the banks didn't see hospitals as a very good risk um, because they just, they, you know, it wasn't, it's not a private business, right? They saw it as quasi, quasi public. Um, And, uh, and they also knew that government was providing most of the grants prior to 1965. And so there was, there was a sense that we already have. Why should we step in? Right. Um, But when, Government started to, um, the, and especially through the Medicare program, to subsidize um, the the interest payments. Um, that made it valuable to the capital markets because it was sort of a sure bet. They got the tax exempt bond, so they could, f- for their investors. They, um, for every dollar invested, it was tax exempt. And then um, they knew that hospitals were going to be reimbursed for the interest. So they could certainly, so it was a safe, so it just reduced the risk. Um, So that's what I kind of describe as like a very, very important beginning stage that government uh, started um the role of capital markets um and then kind of retreated from providing that funding public funding um to hospitals and let the cap- capital markets take over and but but still providing these hidden subsidies so what we have today is you know for example i was just listening to um uh, the editor in chief of health affairs was on a panel thinking uh, that was focused on the role of private equity in healthcare today. And super knowledgeable guy. Obviously, he's the editor of a major health policy journal in the US and um, has worked in government and nonprofit his whole career. Um, but he started. The uh, the panel by saying, well, of course we have the mo- we have a mostly private healthcare system in the U.S. This is a quote from him. And so, in order for that system to function, you need access to capital. So, I'm trying to figure out what's unique about private equity, given that we need capital investment in the healthcare system. So, what's happening here is, you know the guts of what I'm trying to lay out and grow and hide, right? One, he starts out with the myth as the predominantly private healthcare system. And then two, the myth today that follows from that is if we have a predominantly private system, then we have to rely on capital markets to finance that system. Um, And so private equity, what's so bad about why is private equity worse than any other bank that's providing capital investments? And so there is such a broad acceptance of what is actually not even true. About our system,
0: yeah. Um, So as we work our way toward concluding, Holly, let me sort of ask you. um, uh, uh, We think about the the Affordable Care Act, right? Arguably, the the largest, most significant recent effort at. I'll let you describe what it was an effort to do, Um, but. Uh, for listeners who who may not know, there was an effort uh, largely identified with a Yale policy scholar named Jacob Hacker to include a thing in the exchanges called the public option. So instead of there only being these private insurers that you could go to on the marketplace, uh, heavily subsidized in order to buy insurance, that there would also be essentially, it looks like different versions, right? Open up Medicare and anybody who wants to buy in can get access to that had that been enacted do you think that that could have significantly disrupted the pattern that you're describing or would it have folded right into that growing hide pattern and we would what do you what do you think would have been the consequences in the way in which you're thinking about how we should think about the healthcare state um
1: the the public option question i think is a really interesting one um because what it does is highlight that oh, if it's the public, uh, as you said, it, it could have been structured in a couple of different ways. The way that Jacob was talking about it, Jacob Hacker, was that it would be um, kind of connected to the Medicare program, right? That sort of like you would just buy into Medicare. Um, and so, what's very interesting about that um, is is it suggests a couple things that are that that so. Medicare is public, but what's being offered on the exchange is not supposedly public, even though, as you said, it's heavily subsidized. So it actually kind of muddied this notion of of what I'm hoping for is that the American people can have a much public subsidy should be completely transparent. And I don't know exactly how we make that happen. But that to me is the most important thing, is that if we knew what we have already invested in, I think the American people would demand a return on their investment, right? They would demand that they have better healthcare access, that um healthcare is more equitable because they've already paid for it. Um, and so so I was kind of troubled by like, oh, this is public. The public option is public, but presump- this presumption that the other options on the exchange would not be public. Also, what's really weird about Medicare is, uh, as I'm, you know, there's Medicare Advantage, and I think, you know, that's contracting out with private managed care plans, which has now made so many elderly completely confused about the very like Medicare, which we call our closest thing to national health insurance. Many elderly think is private insurance, you know, and I'm sure you've heard those quotes. And for about, many
0: of them it is, if they're exactly. on those advantage and plans. Yeah.
1: Because yeah. we don't do a very good job, we do a horrible job actually regulating those private plans, um, you know, it they're allowed to, to, to act like private insurance companies as well, right? Denial of claims, prior authorization, all of that. Um, so I... I, I also would have worried a little bit, I mean, I'll stop on the public option. I think it's a really interesting question and I could go on. Um the other thing about the uh the Affordable Care Act is um is is it ju- it did just embed us even further into um, you know, subsidizing the private sector, um, obviously through the exchanges, but um, but also on the Medicare expansion side, you know, most of the states that do, almost all of the states that do Medicaid expansion, which has been hugely important for coverage. I don't want to diminish the importance of that. Um, but again, they contract out with private plans and they're Big commercial insurers, and it's really, um, they a number of states have a difficult time reining in these private plans now. Um, and I'm not sure we're getting the 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 what the deals um, that we need to be getting out of um, out of the amount that we spend in um, the Medicare expansion. I'm sorry, Medicaid expansion. So.
0: So this is the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and you have been listening to Colleen Grogan skim the surface of what is a genuinely fascinating new book that, that for those of you who have any interest or knowledge of this, I think will help you rethink the way that we think about the U.S. government's role in health broadly. And maybe if enough people start to do that work... Right. That will create the opportunity for us to to attain that kind of transparency that you were talking about as perhaps the first level of of creating a political space for rethinking this. The book is Grow and Hide, The History of America's Healthcare State by Colleen Grogan, new from Oxford University Press. Colleen, thank you so much for joining us. Much appreciated. Thank you
1: so much, Stephen. It's been it's been fun. Thank you.